Jeff Shreve writes in all caps, while Matt Stanley is not on Twitter, (laughs) probably for the best, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) He does co-host a delightful science podcast with Philip Shane called What the If? If you'd like to hear someone attempt to earnestly answer ever more ridiculous science questions, give it a listen. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, that sounds good. We should listen to that sometime. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we should listen to it. Welcome to What the If. Philip Shane here, documentary filmmaker and um, undercover spy. More about that later. (laughs) (laughs) But not too much because it's secret, right? Because you're a spy. That's it. That's about all I can say. But more about about that later, meaning 50 years after I'm dead. Yeah, that sounds right. So stay tuned for that. Um, And also, Professor Matthew Stanley of the New York University... Is it, by the way, is it still called New York University or are they like one of these places that just, they're just the acronym now? Uh, We are still New York University, um, but we now have uh, multiple branch campuses. So inexplicably, I am technically at New York University, New York. Oh, right. Okay. Well, New York, New York. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I can see that. (laughs) It's funny because I I sometimes teach uh, documentary uh, filmmaking at the New York Film Academy, which is a similar... Similarly, not as big as New York University, but is like a global operation, all in many different countries. And uh, I lived in Los Angeles for a little while, and anyone who does probably knows this. You drive down Sunset Boulevard right in front of the uh, Cinerama Dome across the street. It says the New York Film Academy, even though it's in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yeah, that sounds right. Well, now that we got that out of the way, (laughs) (laughs) why we we the um, the mailbag. The mailbag is exploding. Oh, dear. Someone sent us a mail bomb. <laughs> An information mail bomb. No, it's just uh, it's just growing and, and growing. And it's like the state. What was it? The marsh, marshmallow man, state puff marshmallow man, oh, yeah. Ghostbusters. We're going to get slimed. OK, that's fine. That's pretty much expected. <laughs> We're going to get yeah. slimed with all you listeners and Twitter watchers. And fans of science. So, yeah, we just, we got so much stuff. I, I really thought, you know, today, so today is one of those special audience episodes. This one's for you guys. Do we have a standalone email address apart from the uh, contact us on the website? We do. It's feedback at whattheif.com. Whoa. Yeah, like, think Jimi Hendrix. All right, yeah, sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, what the if Jimi Hendrix played the guitar right side up? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's kind of cool. Like, that is a deep cut. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Both generationally and musically. For our listeners who got that. Yeah. And also, if if you find yourself near Washington Square Park um, and you see me walking around, uh, just, you know, wave. Right. Yeah, that'll con- that's a pretty high bit rate, I think, a wave. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's probably right. Yeah, yeah. in the park, uh, you know. In fact, if you wanted to broadcast, that wave could would be seen by a lot of people. In fact, all kinds of different people. All kinds of, uh, about all the different kinds of people you can conceive of. That's right. Washington Square Park. That's right, that's right. And probably aliens, and there's a lot of dogs. <laughs> dog run. It's that's, that's right. Yeah, particularly the small dog run. Yeah, small dog run is best. Oh, we were out this uh, just this weekend uh, looking at the small, the big lot. The big dog run is fun, but then the next to it is the little dog run. People that don't live in urban cities probably wonder what the heck. No idea what we're talking about. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But in cities, there are confined areas where dogs. Usually, you don't want to let your dog out off his leash, his or her Mm -hmm. leash, for any number of reasons. But uh, so they build these uh, big areas, usually in a park. Only recently, you know, it's only in the last few years, I feel like, that we've seen a segregation of dog runs. There used to be just the dog run. And then somebody realized, yeah, you know, sure. let's make a safe space <laughs> for the little ones. <laughs> 
Yeah, and that's a good idea, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it could be a safe space for the big ones, too, because I think the little little dogs are sometimes more fierce. Than- the little ones are awfully nippy. Yeah. yeah, they tend to cause some trouble. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, let's get to the mailbag. Yes, these are in no particular order. And and I'll shout out your usernames. I hope I pronounce them correctly. We begin with Mother of Scotus. Oh my. Is that a is that a comic book character or something? I do not well Scotus is usually the abbreviation for Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, they, this is S-K-O-D-A-S. Oh, maybe it is then. Yeah. Skodas. Mother of Skodas says... Okay, so so, so some of these are uh, reactions to uh, some of the news. That, that There's a ton of news I post, either, either funny or entertaining or profound or whatever, on, the, on uh, Twitter. And uh, we have a very lively community here. So some of these are... This, this is mailbag slash news review. Cool. So actually, let, let me hit uh, the news review theme. All right. <laughs> that was very stirring. So the the, uh, the article that got posted was that. I, I posted an article, NASA will embark on its first ever all-female spacewalk, which is kind of amazing. Okay. Think about it. We've never had, there have been um, individual women have been out on spacewalks now. Yes, many. Yeah. But uh, there is one coming up, which will be all women. Mm-hmm. And Mother of SCOTUS says, how crazy is it? That this is a headline. <laughs> well, that is a good point. That this, uh, this probably should have uh, uh, been a headline about fifty years ago. Right, right. In fact, oh, kudos to you. You maybe are you mother of Scotus, because mother of Scotus says it's coming up on fifty years oh. <laughs> since we started putting loads of men on the moon. Mm-hmm. Men really suck at sharing their toys. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a nice description. Yeah. yeah. That's about right. That's the boys and their toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in the early days of the space race, there was actually a um, uh, a women's astronaut training corps that never really got off the ground, so to speak, because you know that's um, the you know, like the early Gemini and uh, Mercury programs, the astronauts were drawn from um, test pilots in the military, which, of course, women were not allowed to do. But that was not an obvious choice in the early days of the space program. That is, that astronauts should be drawn from military test pilots. So there was sort of a, a civilian group early on that included lots of women. And then the decision was made to explicitly exclude them. So we could have had that all-female spacewalk 50 years ago if we'd been so inclined. I believe that the um, Russians have had women, or at least at least one, and possibly more women in space, like going way back to the early Yeah, days. from the very early days of the Russian space program. For all of its many, many failings, the Soviet Union did a little bit better with uh, gender issues than the West. Yeah, yeah. As you can tell by their magnificent posters, by the way, there's always... Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. This sort of, uh, at least in their propaganda arm, that's they right. Make special <laughs> efforts to to include women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's uh, here's to here's to slow progress, but progress. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. You can see just there's a general idea there, uh, observation that technology can move a lot faster than sociology or human rights or things like that. How people treat each other is not something you can invent. Do it. Uh, it helps to do it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Another, um, <laughs> speaking of uh, somewhat topical type things, just a funny, just a little funny tidbit, a little quip by James Collins responding to uh, the news headline that I posted, a new 3D map of the Milky Way. Shows oh, that we cool. live. Yeah. 
So that milk, that 3D map of the Milky Way shows we live in a warped galaxy. So James Collins says, uh, kind of like America. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, James. I love that. You know what I love about that joke is it's bipartisan. <laughs> no, well, I guess that's true. <laughs> Everyone agrees we are a bit warped at the moment. Yeah, the warping is interesting. So it's they're referring to this sense that if, if you imagine that the Milky Way is like a uh, old-fashioned record, an LP, as it were, then it's warped, like sometimes the old records would get as well. But one of the things I find is pretty cool is that those those warpings move with time. That is, it's not that the Milky Way is just warped, but it's actually oscillating. I'm waving my hand demonstrating it, but you can't see it right now because this is an audio podcast. So it's uh, it's less like a warped record and more like when you and your friends would grab opposite sides of a blanket and shake it up and down and make it uh, make it oscillate that way. Right. So or like a rope. Yeah. Or like rippling. It ripples. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's rippling. It's rippling on a time scale of tens of millions of years. But That's amazing. And do we know why? I don't. Well, yes, I guess <laughs> it would be um, that's the uh, the gravitational attraction of different different parts of the Milky Way are more and less dense, and the gravitational attraction of those, and the fact that they're in motion, right? Our star is is moving through the Milky Way. Exactly what caused those oscillations in the first place? is not super clear, but one of the candidates is dark matter. So there's probably a dark matter. There are blobs of dark matter within the Milky Way that cause these gravitational oscillations. And it's actually been suggested that interactions with those dark matter chunks will occasionally knock loose comets from the outside of our solar system and send them into the middle. So in an important way, you can blame those warpings of the Milky Way for the dinosaurs' extinction. Um, and if you want to, want to know more about that, I recommend Lisa Randall's great book, uh, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs. It's a lot of fun. And if, if you believed in, say, the panspermia idea that uh, perhaps life came in the form of a comet or water came to Earth in, in the form of comets, you could also blame dark matter for life on Earth. You know, if you're yeah, not, if you're so inclined. Exactly. Yeah. If you think life is pollution, then... Every... every bad interaction you've had with a human being, you can blame on dark matter. Yeah. Dark. <laughs> and true enough that we know so little about dark matter. It really can be this sort of just dumping ground for all. We can just, every, every, you can bl- everyone can blame dark matter. Yeah, that's right. Why is this report late? Dark matter. <laughs> Have you had students? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a matter of time now that I've announced it. Exactly. Exactly. That's fantastic. My dark matter ate it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, Todd Bergert, or Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R-T, Todd Bergert, uh, responding to uh, the news, uh, a news headline with an idea. One way to, pre- uh, oh, actually, this, this actually, I think, was done. So, so the headline was, one way to preserve human civilization, question mark, send a 30 million page library to the moon. Oh, yeah. And I think that is on the Israeli uh, lander. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, Along with the Old Testament, the, mm-hmm. uh, the Hebrew Torah is on there. And I, I, I am so jealous of the bar mitzvah boy <laughs> who is going to have his bar mitzvah on the moon and will get to read from an iPad or something, because it's digitized, from the uh, the Torah. If you're not familiar with bar mitzvahs, it's this Jewish ceremony. When you're 13, you get a party. But there's a little bit of, you got to earn it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, that, I hadn't thought about that. So, but yeah, first bar mitzvah on the moon is going to be pretty kick-ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, that's, mm, I'm going to put that on my invitation. I'm, you know what, I'm just, you remember Stephen Hawking did a thing, right, where he sent out, uh, it was like a time travel thing, he invited People of the future to this party. That was in the past, yeah. That's right. And, I well, 
maybe I'm, it's just going to be like an affirmations, you know, affirmations. You say something as if it's true and maybe, or positive visualization. I'm, I'm going to have printed up invitations to my bar mitzvah on the moon. Yeah, I don't see why not. That, that not, I'm, when I'm on the moon for 13 years, because I'm, I'm going for the long run, <laughs> <laughs> we'll consider that. Boy, this is going to be a heck of a um, party. Yeah, but the, you know, the moon's a great place to store stuff that you want to last. And similarly, I was just, I'm, I'm reviewing a book about the uh, Voyager Golden Records at the yeah. moment. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, it's, it's pointed out there that even after the solar system is destroyed, that is after the sun consumes the Earth billions of years from now, the uh, the golden records will still be out there cruising through space. And all that will be left of human civilization is those pictures and that music and Jimmy Carter saying hello. That is incredible. That is incredible. And now, the records, I can, now, first of all, they're further out in space, but all of these things must be protected in some way or designed in such a way that radiation doesn't destroy them. This is very hard to do because the best radiation shielding is just lots of stuff. So that means it's heavy. So that means you essentially can't do it on those kinds of spacecraft. The, um, there's two threats to something like the Golden Records. One is radiation, which is just random cosmic rays. And there's very little you can do about that. You just have to suck it up and hope it's not too bad. And the other is micrometeoroids, right? When you're going at interplanetary speeds, a tiny little speck of dust is a big problem. Right. Um, so, uh, again, the best way to protect from that is just to cover it up with something. But you can't really do that with the Voyagers because it's just any good protection is just too heavy. So the, the main protection mechanism for the Voyager record was turning it face in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. So they decided which side of the record was more important, and they turned that face in so the other side would get demolished first. So wow, you know, for you, for all you audiophiles out there, take a note. You know, I know if you're like me when I was growing up, you're precious about those vinyls mm-hmm. and your vinyl records. And I never thought about this. I would, I would probably have to choose, and this would be hard. Like, which side of the album should be preserved longer? Should it be the second, the B side of Abbey Road or the A side? I mean, uh, that's a tough make, one. How do you make a choice like that? Terrible. Thank you for the end. Fortunately, it's been digitized since. So, but uh, as far as the artifact itself, who knows? But Todd, uh, Todd Bergert, Ter- Berger, Bergert says, uh, I hope, okay, so the headline was send a 30 million page library to the moon. Yeah. And Todd says, I hope that it was checked out for longer than two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, Todd. That's a good point. I yeah. mean, the fine. <laughs> right. Five cents a day. <laughs> and, you know, a billion years, four yeah. billion years. <laughs> so I, I'm interested, actually, if anyone knows any details about that, or I'd like to look it up. The What what mechanism are they using to preserve those things uh, on that? Uh, yeah, I don't know. We should check it out. Which, by the way, let, let's take a note that that satellite has not landed yet. It's, it's going to land on the moon in April. It's taking a slow route, more energy efficient, very low budget mission. Uh, so it's still in transit. All right. Here's a reaction to our episode that had the title, Lizards are Cold-Blooded Creatures. What the if you were too? Ah, yeah. What if we were cold-blooded animals the way lizards are? And a uh, user named Dangling Left hmm. says, I would rather molt, leaving behind a skin shell of my previous self. That would be real cool. LOL. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And what is molt? By the way, molting, this is, is that different than cold-blooded or... No, snakes do it. I think many critters that are cold-blooded also molt, but I don't know if there's a direct relationship between the two. Molting is when you literally shed your outer skin and a new, refreshing new skin is underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a self-loofah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Self-loofah.com. We, we should call goop about Is it goop? Gorp. Goop, what? Yeah. goop right? But, 
So here's another funny one. Our audience is, you know, it's because you're all very smart. Smart people are funny. What? Uh, the headline that I had posted was Saturn's rings are disappearing faster than anyone realized. Which is interesting. Huh? And yeah. so a user named Haiku takes Haiku like the the Japanese poetry. By the way, Haiku takes, if you're really into Haiku, I refer you to a very early episode we have, a series of episodes in which we imagined what if the signals that were discovered in the Large Hadron Collider could be decoded (laughs) and turned out to be a Haiku in Japanese. We were so, so naive back in those days. Early days of what the if, so uh, check that out. Anyway, the headline was Saturn's rings are disappearing faster than anyone realized, and Haiku takes says, it's because of Earth's global warming, correct? (laughs) (laughs) Is Earth's global warming ruining the rings of Saturn? Huh. Uh, Hang on, I'm thinking. (laughs) (laughs) It 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 would be tough. Yeah. But that is a great what the if. Yeah. What if we were, it, you know, I wonder how we would change. Actually, I'm going to put this down there, I think. And, and um, Haiku takes, if we ever actually do an episode of this, you're going to get a just a puppet out of the blue. <laughs> a finger puppet. I love the idea that what if we were ruining even more than the Earth? Would that change our attitude? Like, what if we were ruining the moon oh. and Mars and as you know, as far away as mm-hmm. actually something as beautiful as Saturn, yeah, yeah, we can we can do stuff with that. That would be pretty um, pretty interesting. So uh, you know, or what? For instance, if it was the moon, and what if you could see like the moon, like the man on the moon, the face, the face. What if the face of the moon began to show some kind of damage over time? You know that mm-hmm. everyone saw every night. Yeah, I have confidence in us. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, now, we had another reaction uh, to that same headline from a user named Friend Sharky uh, hmm. at Deserath. And uh, Friend Sharky says, <laughs> I dislike my mind at times. It can, <laughs> it can envision. Well, yeah. I was going to say, I think we can all sympathize with that, right? Yeah. yeah. And we mean our own minds, not your mind, friend Sharky. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We like your mind very much. Uh, friend Sharky says, I dislike my mind at times. It can envision the eventual finality of it all, ending in a slow march towards roving black holes and gamma radiation. Just nothing alive, save maybe some unfortunate expired civilization's type three machine intelligence, remembering yes. what once was. Wow. Yeah. I, I do not know what, what is type 3 machine intelligence. I'm not sure if he's referring to type 3 civilization. I'm, I'm not, if type 3 refers to something specific in machine intelligence, I'm not familiar with it. But there's, uh, I think it's called the Kardashev scale, which is kind of a rough way of talking about the power level of alien civilizations. So a type 1 civilization has harnessed all the power from a single star. And a type two has harnessed all the power from an entire galaxy. And then type three would be uh, an entire universe. I think that's right. It's been a while since I've looked at yeah, the something scale. Like that. Or it might be planet civilization, uh, sorry, planet, solar system, galaxy. Yeah, it could be. Galactic. But it's been yeah. a little while since I thought about it. Right. Actually, I think I heard Kardashev was another way. I Kardashev, Although like I like the, but basically what you said was the Kardashian scale. That's right. Someone who has harnessed the the power of an entire tweet and then <laughs> an entire social media platform and then Mark Zuckerberg's basement. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh or the power of their butt. This <laughs> is all I know about the Kardashians <laughs> tweet with it with her butt is something connected. So um all right, now we have a, a series of um uh to, uh People reacting to the, the the awesome story about Oumuamua. Yeah, always a good one. Yeah. yeah. The, the, what was Oumuamua? 
Oh, Oumuamua is this uh, mysterious object that uh, was detected, I guess, a couple of years ago now? That has a trajectory suggesting it came in from outside the solar system, making it the first object we've spotted doing that. And there was a lot of speculation about where it came from um, and what its origins might have been. Right, right. It's, it's one of the most fascinating stories. And so, I'm sorry, I thought it was, I had a bunch of things. Just one person. So Rick, so here, here the headline was, The Mysterious Oumuamua. And there was a quote from scientists who said, the biggest puzzle about Oumuamua was the way it moved. As it zoomed away from the sun, it sped up slightly, as if given an invisible push. And so Rick Tetro, Tetralt, at Adam, Admiral, at Admiral Marius. Hmm. By the way, this is, we, we've heard from Rick before. Thank you for keeping in touch with us. Super if for Rick. Rick says, just remember, the Ramans do everything in threes. Hmm. Now, I know what that is. Do you know what that is? I do not. Okay. No. So, so what's funny is that me re- if you saw it on paper, maybe it'd be a little bit more clear. It sounds like I'm talking about ra- like ramen noodles. Right. It's not that. It's ram- R-A-M-A-N-S. That ramens are people who built... Oh, has, or has inhabited rendezvous for from Rama. Yes, rendezvous rendezvous with Rama. With Rama, yeah. yeah. The um, absolutely incredible one of our, Arthur C. Great Arthur C. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'm happy to call him I that. Like that. Arthur C. Clarke, one of the greatest science fiction writers, and, and my favorite when I was growing up. Absolutely incredible, uh, and one of his very best books, um, mm-hmm. Rendezvous with Rama was about a mysterious, long, and in that case, cylindrical object that just showed up in the solar system, traveling through. And in that case, it was clear that it wasn't built by people, or it was in a ship of some kind. Umumua, we do not have evidence that it was that. Uh, some people speculate maybe it was, but yeah, they do everything in threes. So if you've read that book, you're like, ha ha. <laughs> if you haven't, just say. Get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler. Uh, we, we won't spoil it. So a couple of reactions here to the headline. In This is from Real Clear Science. In the Mariana Trench, the lowest part in the ocean, in any ocean, Every time, oh, wow, this is really sad. So, in the Mariana Trench, the lowest point of any ocean, every tiny animal tested. This is the lowest, the bottom, the deepest part of the ocean in the on the planet. Every tiny animal tested had plastic pollution in its gut. Oh boy, wow! And so, Jennifer Ewan writes in to say, the extent of plastic pollution is truly overwhelmingly horrifying. Uh, yep, that sounds right. And Susan Richards <laughs> follows that up, responding to Jennifer and uh, and us, saying, "Hell, it's probably part of our DNA now." <laughs> oh well, that's um, she can be re- uh, reassured that that's not the case anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but there's uh, because DNA, like plastic, are is long polycarbonate molecules. So you might mistake DNA for plastic or vice versa. Wow. Um, but the, the the scale is such that you'll never have plastic inside your DNA. Okay. Again, so. another fascinating um, what the if. Actually, well, technically, uh, like I was thinking, what if there was some defect in DNA that spread everywhere? But in fact, that's isn't that's what Dizzy, that's what cancer is, and yeah, I suppose that's right. We've got lots of malformed DNA out there, yeah, that replicates itself, right, in in a way we don't like, yeah, right, right. So, okay, now this user named. I'm just reading this. I'm just stating it like it is. Just presenting the facts. The user's name is Eli's dog Farf. Huh. F-A-R-F. Eli's dog, Farf, is in heaven. So that's, that, that whole thing is their that's name? That's the name. 
It even has two commas in it. So I'm glad, uh, I'm sorry to hear, e- Eli, that you lost your dear dog, Farf, but I'm glad that he or she is in heaven. And he responds to the story about the pl- plastic being found in animals, even at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. He says, perfect answer. I mean, a good solution to this. Add vitamins to plastic. <laughs> because it's a sure thing. Humans are addicted to its use, so there'll always be junk in the water. But huh. yeah, why not? That's kind of brilliant. Yeah, that would not have occurred to me, but that is a good solution, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, from a... What from could a possibly purely, go wrong? <laughs> right, from a purely scientific point of view, one of the things I find uh, interesting about these stories, as opposed to just horrific, is it shows how well mixed the oceans are, that there really aren't any purely isolated places in the world, essentially, right? And this is a lesson we learned about the atmosphere back in the 60s and 70s with pollution, naturally, same kind of thing. Right. So in the, the early days of acid rain, when um, people first figured it out, the great puzzle in terms of regulating it was that the acid rain falls in Vermont, but it's caused by Ohio. So Ohio says, why should we do anything about it? <laughs> There's nothing wrong here. And Vermont says, but it's not our fault. And then, uh, yes, of course, the pollutants cross um, international boundaries. Well, and uh, so then I, I, I recommend people look at my friend uh, Rachel Rothschild's work about this, about environmental diplomacy and how that came to be a thing. Uh-huh. So maybe the fish will be sending us environmental diplomats soon. Yeah, maybe that's what all the shark attacks are about. That's true. They were just frustrated that we're not listening to their uh, ambassadors to the United Nations. What yeah. do we have to do? Or, or <laughs> Douglas Adams would say that uh, all the jumping and stuff that dolphins are doing is a sign you know they're, they're actually trying to tell us something <laughs> that, enough that, with the plastic right i think they're telling us the vogons are coming or something um all right uh, here we had another headline floating solar farms so that's kind of cool again we're, we're back on the ocean okay or lakes i suppose but floating solar farms this was from um uh, actually uh, this is a great source of science I, I don't know that a lot of people know about this and it's not one that you would that automatically come to mind NBC News has a uh, program, I think it's it's just a web program, or you you can get it if you get like the digital version on Apple TV, if you watch NBC. It's called Mach, M-A-C-H, just like the uh, speed of sound measurement. NBC News Mach has tons of great stories. Anyway, and here here was one, floating solar farms, how flotovoltaics, (laughs) how flotovoltaics could provide power without taking up valuable real estate. Huh? Okay. And so user BHA1 says, how would you connect this to the grid, though? How robust is it to make such an infrastructure offshore and connected, or does this require battery storage? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I can imagine uh, a couple of possibilities. One would actually just be giant cables. I mean, we have giant cables stretching under the ocean, right? They carry our internet and uh, fiber optic signals and such. Power cables are much heavier, but nonetheless, at least conceivable that you could make ones that are a few miles long, that kind of just hang there independently. It would be a little weird, but it would look like we're, I don't know, fishing for krakens or something, right? <laughs> Some kind of giant critter. You can also transmit power wirelessly by microwaves, oh, if wow. you're so inclined. We don't do that because there isn't generally a good reason to, <laughs> as the power cables generally work okay. But if a bird flew but into that microwave? Yeah, it turns out not to be. That was my first concern, too, when I read about this. Usually people talk about uh, this transmission in the context of orbital solar power. Oh, uh-huh. plants. right. So that would, you stick this out in space and then it broadcasts the power down. And it turns out the energy density is low enough that the birds will be okay. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So it could be done, or battery swapping, I suppose. You just send a ship out there once a month, and they pick up the charged batteries and drop off the uh, uncharged batteries. 
I suspect that would not be a very efficient way to do it, but we'd need to crunch the numbers. Not to mention all the energy the ship needs to... Exactly, right? Because those batteries are going to be crazy heavy. And they're going to blow up. I mean, safety hazard. An entire tanker full of lithium batteries or something. Yeah, it could be inconvenient. And and, and just one tiny note, this thing is... I, I always think, you know, whenever we talk about pollution and coal plants and coal plant friends coal is the cheapest thing but you know it's incredibly polluting why can't or nuclear nuclear power is a better example where why do we put them anywhere near people why don't we put them you know on the north pole or something and then just use cables but isn't the problem that transmitting power is incredibly difficult uh that's right so you um you lose energy with distance however however it is you're transmitting energy from place to place you'll lose energy you need to decide at what point that's efficient because it costs money to, to generate power. So this is one of the problems with solar power. It's often invoked. is um, It's not hard to crunch the calculations and show that you can provide all of the energy needs for the United States with a fairly small chunk of Arizona. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> the problem is that not many people live in Arizona. So unless you want to relocate all the industry and people of the United States right there, you need to build a gigantic grid that can transport that energy. And as of and that's again totally doable. This is a totally doable technical task. But as yet we do not have the political will to put the resources into that project. And I'm not sure how the people of Arizona would feel about everyone in the world moving to their beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. State. And I should say, there's also, uh, it's just, you know, speaking of the, um, uh, this would be the case with the floating ones as well. Is that there are ecological impacts even on deserts? Right. We city dwellers think of deserts as inert places where nothing happens, but that's not true. It's all there's really important ecological networks uh, that exist there. So presumably, there would be some ecological impacts of taking over big chunks of the ocean as well. Yeah. And I don't know if people have looked at that yet. And uh, BHA follows up and says, it's interesting, BHA1, it says, uh, it's interesting though, with Microsoft having data centers inside oceans, and which I'm not, I didn't know about, uh, or maybe it's just saying, what if that happened? With Microsoft having data centers inside oceans, and then we also have the ability to generate offshore solar and wind power, we could have self-sustaining islands of tech in the very close future. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there might need to be some thought into the serviceability and some automation required, but it sounds very promising. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty wild. Yeah, I should say, again, totally doable thing, just a question of whether it's worth it. I think I do know what he might be referring to um, with the servers. I think, it, I think it's Google, but not Microsoft, though, which is you can... Um, if you build server farms on like barges that you tie up, then you can use the water for cooling those servers very easily. Oh, um, uh-huh. And, you know, you can imagine a techno-libertarian future in which, yeah, there are these high-tech islands floating around the ocean, not subject to any government or regulation and such. It seems almost certain that those would end up being a disaster, but nonetheless. Oh, yeah. Facebook Island. There'll be naval (laughs) wars between Google, Facebook, and Apple, and things like that. And certainly video game servers would be probably the biggest thing in the world. Now, Miguel Bento, one of our longtime and and, uh, most prolific super-ifers out there in correspondence, responding to that episode about about what if we were cold-blooded animals, Mm -hmm. He said uh, yesterday's, he was writing this right after, the, the day after he listened to it, immediately got online and commented. Yesterday's if on cold, yesterday's if on cold-blooded humans was really interesting, guys. I have questions. In terms of the discovery of the differences between cold-blooded and warm-blooded animals, how much of an impact did this have towards making the case for the theory of evolution? And... Or did anyone try to use this to debunk evolution? And he finishes up by saying, uh, some warm-blooded animals like bears hibernate. Is this an indication of periods of cooling in Earth's history? 
where typically warm regions became colder and animals had to adapt or die? Uh, So those are really good questions that I don't really know the answer to. In terms of evolutionary thinking about complicated traits like hibernation, is there's two issues you have to think about. First is, what is its utility? That is, why did that trait get selected for by evolution? And you can see the benefit for for hibernation. So then the question is, is this because bears were moving to colder climes or the places where they were living got colder? And then the second question is always one of continuity. That is, evolution is all about small changes over time. So the trick is to figure out how you get a complex adaptive behavior like hibernation from gradual changes over time. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right? right. So with Darwin, these the, the question of continuity was generally uh, structural. That is, how do you get a complicated thing like the hand from small changes over time? So that's preserved in the fossil record. In terms of behaviors, it's a little more tricky because those behaviors are not well preserved in the fossil record, and generally, not at all. What you have to do then is look at existing critters to see if there are kind of halfway behaviors. That is, are there things that are kind that share some features with hibernation but are not themselves hibernation? And that's the kind of thing that if you were an evolutionary biologist, you would spend your time trying to figure out. Interesting. Yeah, and fantastic questions, Miguel. I'm, I'm not sure what, I forget what your uh, occupation is, but it sounds like I don't know. You should be an evolutionist. Whatever that is. Yeah, go for it. Do it. Excellent questions. Great. And imagination. That's what it's all about. Uh, It it just is. But by the way, a lot of these people are from all over the world, which I just find extraordinary. And some uh, uh, John John Lundgren, L-J-U-N, Grin, had had wrote in uh, just recently and said uh, he had an idea, which we're going to put on the pile for possible future shows, what if the Earth was a moon orbiting around another planet? Yeah, yeah. Like Jupiter. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But for today, I just wanted to, to add, um, I said, I'm just curious, you know, what do you like? He's, he had said he loved the show, and what, does he, what did he like? I said, and where is he in the world? And he says, as a bit of a science and facts and science fiction nerd, I like that. A science nerd, <laughs> a science fiction nerd, and a facts nerd. Yeah, F-A-C-T-S. The theme of your podcast fits perfectly with what I enjoy and like to listen to, which is wonderful. Yeah. Not only are you two very entertaining, parentheses, you two are just great. Huh. But the subjects are either things I don't know or things that I know something about that I get a new perspective on. And, of course, in a very playful and easily approachable way. Also, this definitely applies to today's show, I like the disparity of your subjects, which I bet is a consequence of letting listeners like him chime in with their own ideas. (laughs) Big thumbs up from me and my wife and everyone I have convinced to start listening. It's always a pleasure. So shout out to you, John. Shout out to Mrs. John, your wife, and everyone you have convinced to start listening. He says, I am a Swede living in Sweden. How about that? Nice. Fantastic. Writing in from Sweden. So thank you, John. Bill, another one of our great superifers, uh, Prokopchuk, by the way, has now told me that, how to pronounce his name, and I've kind of been doing it right. Prokopchuk. Uh, Prokopchuk. Says uh, in reference to Dr. Hannah Fry, who you remember, it may remember, came up in an earlier episode. And we uh, did you mention her? Somebody mentioned her, and we didn't know who she was. And he says, <laughs> What the if two great science podcasters <laughs> on their March 11th podcast admitted that they, <laughs> they did not know of Dr. Hannah Fry? Oh, that's totally implausible. That would never happen. Never happen. Yeah. And don't go back and check that March 11th episode. I tell you, he says, I tell you what the if. Check out Dr. Fry's science radio show that is called The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. And that does actually ring a bell. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Adam Rutherford. Dr. Fry is a mathematician. And Dr. Rutherford is a geneticist. 
The show is on hiatus right now, but you can find 12 years wow. of archived Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fi- Fry on the BBC website and as a podcast. Like your program, it is funny and profound at the same time. Bill is proud to be, claimed, be proclaimed a super effer, and Bill is in uh, Virginia. Yeah, any, any comparison between us and a BBC program is a high honor. So thank you very much for that. And uh, finally, um, a tweet storm erupted. A tweet storm, I think that's what they call it. That's what the kids are calling it these days. A tweet storm, or a flood, or just erupt, literally right as we were going on the air. Meaning, sitting down to talk here and record this. And it comes from someone named Jeff Shreve. I don't know. Are you familiar with Jeff Shreve? Uh, Jeff is my literary agent. Ah, and Jeff, <laughs> Jeff is really earning his whatever percentage he gets from you today. Here are some of the things he has said, and, and this is this is important news. So I want all our listeners to listen up. Jeff says, "Man, the starred reviews for Matt Stanley's Einstein's War." out this May from Viking Books UK and Dutton Books, are coming in fast and furious. So that's great. First up, Kirkus Reviews. Quote, a superb account of Edison and Eddington's spectacularly successful struggles to work and survive under miserable wartime conditions. Yeah, that should be Einstein and Eddington, though. <laughs> ah, <laughs> who's that? Yeah. Sorry, Jeff. But this is great. We're doing real-time fact-checking right Exactly. Here. <laughs> yep. That's the way to do it. And Jeff also writes, shares uh, a review from Publishers Weekly. That's uh, very good. Stanley places Einstein's theory of relativity in a valuable historical context in this impressive work of popular science. That's pretty great. Yeah, I'll take that. And Publishers Weekly did an interview with you, Stanley, about the book. Too. Yeah, if anybody wants to uh, uh, find out a little more details, go take a peek. That's excellent. That's audio or uh, print? Uh, print. Okay, yeah. excellent. Um, yeah, so there's both online and uh, Dead Tree versions for Publishers Weekly. Yeah. Excellent. And finally, Jeff writes, Jeff Shreve writes, also, in all caps, also, while Matt Stanley is not on Twitter, probably for the best, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> He does co-host a delightful science podcast with Philip Shane called What the If. If you'd like to hear someone attempt to earnestly answer ever more ridiculous science questions, give it a listen. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Uh, that sounds good. We should listen to that sometime. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we should listen to it. So congratulations. This is very exciting. Your book is uh, so it's you. getting reviewed. That means it's done. It's It'll be out in May, um, and advanced copies get set, sent to places like Publishers Weekly and Kirkus to uh, uh, review ahead of time so people can decide whether or not they, they would like to read it. This is fantastic. Oh, we're going to do, do some fun shows about this. And this happens to be the topic, by the way, that, that how we met. Uh, that's right. Actually, a while yes. back, doing a documentary about uh, Einstein and Eddington. So yeah, look for that. Uh, when? Uh, sorry, it'll be May, uh, and uh, will it be out for May the Fourth? Uh, Star Wars Day. It will not, but uh, soon thereafter. And I believe it is available for pre-order on Amazon already. So you can search for Einstein's War and see if it pops up. Oh, fantastic! Einstein's War by uh, Matthew Stanley, and that's the mailbag. It's quite a mailbag. Wow. Wow. And by the way, more have been coming in as we've been recording. So we'll hear us from those in the future. This was super fun. Every one of you who enjoys the show, uh, whether you've written in or not, if you could go to iTunes and leave us a review, you can click some stars, five stars would be fantastic. And if you can write a few words, that's great. If all you do is click the stars, that's, that's helpful. If you write just a few words, that's helpful too. Even if you don't use iTunes, and I and I know I absolutely sympathize with the idea that people use a wide variety of platforms, but iTunes remains sort of the central one that uh, I think even the Google Play Store is. They just print the reviews that come from iTunes. So 
If you could do that, that would really be helpful. And keep writing in, keep sharing your ideas for show topics. Everyone whose show gets, uh, everyone whose idea becomes a chef, becomes a show, becomes an episode, receives a wonderful gift of a finger puppet of a scientist or science fiction character from the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. That's uh, philosophersguild.com. Friends of ours who just, they just give us these puppets and they say, we love your audience. Share these. And just a, a peek forward, I won't say who it is yet, but we also have another very exciting person uh, who's going to be joining us, very uh, artistic and science-loving person is joining us, and we are going to have amazing gifts coming up then, too. So write in, share your ideas, and of course, feedback at whattheif.com. You can email us. Go to the website, whattheif.com. You can listen to all our episodes there, and you can contact us there as well, if that's easier, on Twitter, at whattheifshow. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe. Then you just don't have to think about it anymore. The, we, what the if comes out pretty regularly, which I'll, I'm going <laughs> to say thank you to myself for being able to keep up <laughs> regular. Con- consistency is everything in show business. And so pretty much every Tuesday, um, we are uh, out with a new episode. Matt, anything coming up between now and the book you'd like to plug? Um... No, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. What did you do when you finished the... the, the And what was the action that you did that you knew, oh, that's it, I'm done? And then what did you do afterwards? Just tell me. Oh, uh, well, it's just part of the problem is that there's kind of always one more thing with publishing, one more round of reviews. So until the book is physically in my hands, it's still... Uh, on order you're still tweaking yeah right right so it's not a not a done deal all right the work goes on as it should as always as always we don't know what's coming up next week neither do you but whatever happens we are going to shout to the world what what the, the- if, 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 if.